There is wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. I'm also reminded that there's not much power in my words saying, Jed, don't mention that it's my birthday. (laughs) But I'm also reminded what a gift it is at age 27. Yes, I'm just that old. Um, to be truly working my dream job among people that I love very much. So thank you for celebrating my birthday with me today. Today we want to celebrate the gift of God's Word by turning to Mark chapter 6. As we continue following Jesus through the lectionary texts in the Gospel of Mark, this morning we'll be looking at 29 verses in Mark chapter 6. Up to this point, we've followed Jesus as he's gone to different villages, as he's been preaching and healing and doing good work and sharing signs of the kingdom. But now, in Mark chapter 6, we're going to start back in Jesus' hometown. But before we come to God's word, let's pray. Lord, may your word be a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. May you make clear to us the way in which we are to go. And may you give us the light that shines brightly, that points us towards you and to you alone. And may that light be not hidden or kept to ourselves, but shared with the world. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, show us your light. Illumine your word to us that we may follow you more faithfully. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. 
Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are so many things that we take for granted all too easily. For example, if you really think about it, we shouldn't be able to do this, but we can. I mean, with the flip of a switch or a quick turn of your fingers, you can bring light into a room. With a couple pushes of a button, you can heat your house with a furnace. Think of the mass distances that we travel with our vehicles. All of these things are so familiar to us that we might pass over how incredible they really are. I mean, how convenient. What a great time to be alive. Whenever anyone asks me, what's your favorite time period to live in, I would say, now. Have you been to the dentist recently? We have lights. We have all of these amazing conveniences. And too often we take them for granted. Now, what I'm not saying is that every time you walk into a room, you should, (gasps) whoa, because nobody has time for that, and it would be strange. But nonetheless, there's so many things we take for granted. The lights that we have, the, the heat in this room, all of these things are easy to take for granted because they're so familiar to us. They're so familiar to us that we sometimes forget how amazing they are or can't see past what we know. We take for granted what is ubiquitous in our lives. 
When I was in fourth grade, the prophets of the Weather Channel were forecasting gloom, doom, and apocalypse for northwest Indiana. And this was exciting news because, as any fourth grader would pray for, it just might mean school days. School snow days could be at hand. And, of course, as it normally goes, Saturday rolls around, not a flake. Sunday morning, go to church. It was breezy, but no storm had yet arrived. But then in the late afternoon, a storm started to show up. But it wasn't just the snow. We also got a ton of freezing rain and strong winds, and the amount of weight on tree branches and power lines set us up for something that no one anticipated, a town-wide power outage. Our house was without power for three days. But we didn't really mind, because it also meant four days off of school. Life was good. But all of the things that we so easily could take for granted in the wintertime were taken away from us. Had we noticed just how much we appreciated having light switches to turn off and on? But we also got to know how handy flashlights and candles were. Sure, we missed the convenience of the furnace, but we had a brand new appreciation for our fireplace. And we did some very clever meals over the fireplace and the gas stove. All of these things pushed us to go beyond what was familiar for how life normally was and for a new appreciation for the power that we had. And what I will always remember most of that time is my newfound appreciation for how well I got along with my sisters. I mean, three or four days without power, that's a lot of board games. And we had a great time. And the only thing I would note is that if you're the youngest child, it's a horribly unfair position in Monopoly because you're not old enough to be the banker and you somehow always end up with less money than anyone else. Other youngest children will know of what I speak. But it took us away from all of that which was familiar. It removed all the things that we took for granted and it gave us a new appreciation for those things when they returned and a new appreciation for things that were always around us but we never took the time to notice them. The people of Nazareth could have used a power outage for them to get to know Jesus and who he really was and is. Because the people of Nazareth can't see past the familiar aspects of Jesus to see him in his fullness. In Nazareth, they're amazed at first because he comes back to town and he's preaching and he's performing signs and miracles and they're amazed, but then they take offense at him. Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus who they grew up with. It's Jesus whom they've known since he was a boy. And it's all too familiar. They know Jesus as their neighborhood kid. And so they can't recognize Christ in all of his glory and majesty and power and authority. They know Jesus as a carpenter. They have a very set idea of what Jesus can and can't do. And they're offended at that which surprises them. They know Jesus as a carpenter who can heal, or a carpenter who can maybe fix your house, but they don't know him as one who can heal. They know Jesus as the Son of Mary. They don't recognize him as the Son of God. Now, there's an interesting note there, but they call him the Son of Mary. Why wouldn't they call him the Son of Joseph? 
Some scholars will tell you this is our strong hint that Joseph, by this point, has already died. And this is one of the ways in which Mark is noting that to us, that Joseph has already died at that point, so they refer to Jesus as the son of Mary. Still others would say that this is actually a little bit of a bash against Jesus. They remember that Mary was pregnant before Joseph and Mary were married. And so this saying, Jesus as the son of Mary, is a way to note that this this child was illegitimate, that Jesus was Mary and Joseph's illegitimate child. A little bit of a rub against Jesus as he returns to his hometown, a way to reject his authority by critiquing him as a person. Still others would note very strongly that this is Mark's way of hinting us in the gospel that Jesus is in fact not the son of Joseph but that he is God's own son. Now, whenever scholars give you three options, and they all argue very strongly for each of them, but the three options are not mutually exclusive, it's a little bit of both. Take a little bit of all of them. It is probably true that Joseph has passed away at this point. It is also true that this would be a way for those who knew Jesus in his childhood to hint something at him to try to shame him. And without a doubt, it is the great writing of Mark's gospel to hint to us, to remind us that Jesus is the Son of God and not just the Son of Joseph, but that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But what still holds true for the people of Nazareth is that they know Jesus in all the familiar ways and can't see past what they already know of him. They define him by his occupation, by his family, by his brothers and sisters, but they cannot see him as a prophet. Do you ever wonder if your concept of Jesus is too familiar? If we have a certain perception of who Jesus is and what he can and can't do, and we don't ever look or see beyond that, For many of us, Jesus is familiar. And there is something good to familiarity, but familiarity can also bring us to take things for granted. That, yeah, we know Jesus. And that we don't have the marvel or the wonder or the awe at who Jesus is and what he did and what it means for us. Sometimes it becomes too familiar. And we, like the people of Nazareth, have our boxes of what Jesus can do and what he can't do, of who he is and who he isn't. Sometimes our own concept of Jesus and his power is so familiar that it almost doesn't exist at all. Watch ourselves against being the church, becoming like the people of Nazareth. Like flipping the lights on and off, this casual familiarity with Jesus and a failure to recognize him for all that he truly is. There's power. There's power that Jesus has, but the people can't see it because they can't see past what they already know. One thing that I'd also like to note in verse 5 is that peculiar verse about he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. One thing that was brought up in our staff meeting was this. 
wouldn't it still be quite a miracle to the people who were healed? He could not do any miracles there, but he did heal some sick people. And I bet that was a miracle for them. But Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith, amazed at their lack of belief, their inability to believe in him and accept who he truly was. Now, what I don't want us to take away from this is that Jesus is kind of like a DC comic superhero, Superman, who absorbs his power from the sun. And once he absorbs that power, then he can go do amazing things. That Jesus is not like some sort of cosmic solar panel that absorbs faith and then can use it in other ways. That's a really mechanical view of Jesus' power, that it would depend on our faith in him to allow him to do miracles. God can perform miracles and signs on God's own terms. But consider what's happening differently in Nazareth than anywhere else that we've seen in the first five chapters of Mark. Everywhere else that Jesus has gone, the crowds have come to him. People have pressed in around him. People have reached out just to touch him to be healed. People have brought their friends, and those who are in need of healing have been brought to Jesus. We've vandalized houses by breaking through the roof to get people in the presence of Jesus because there was faith and there was a desire and a yearning to bring people to Jesus. But in Nazareth, no one's bringing people to Jesus. There's no faith in who Jesus is that he can heal them. So no one is brought. The crowds don't gather. The healing isn't even asked for except for a few sick people that Jesus laid his hands on and healed them. wonder who those people in Nazareth were and if they had a different perspective on Jesus and his power. But part of the problem in Nazareth is the people are wondering, where did he get these things? We know him as a carpenter. Where did he get the rest of these things? Where did he get his power? And Jesus is reminded that no prophet has honor in their hometown which is why I do hope to preach in my home church sometime soon because they're vacant but would never accept a call there. Because people know you too well if they watched you grow up. My parents are here this weekend too. Don't ask them for stories. The disciples are going to face this same criticism though. Just as, isn't this Jesus the carpenter was the reception he received? The disciples are going to receive similar things. Some of them, isn't, aren't those the fishermen? Don't we know them? Where did they get these things? Where did they get this power? Where did they, who do they think they are? Jesus demonstrates in the next part of the passage that just as what he received from the Father, he also gives to his disciples that they are the fishermen and the handful of other folks, the tax collector. They are those things, but they have also been given power from God. And this power has been given to them for a reason and a purpose. They have been given power over impure spirits. They have given, been given power from God for all the things that disrupt shalom to be made right. Do we know this term of shalom? This concept of a perfect peace and an adherence to what God intended for the world, for fullness and wholeness and peace and harmony, that all things would be made right and well as God had originally designed. 
This concept of shalom has been disrupted by sin. And the disciples have been given power over impure spirits. They have been given power over all that disrupts shalom. The disciples have been given this, to them, an incredibly foreign power, but a power to recreate shalom, to redeem those around them, both individuals and communities. Demons would be cast out. People would be healed. Shalom would be restored. This power was given to the disciples by Jesus. But it comes at one cost. It comes at a trade-off. To receive this incredibly foreign and heavenly power, they also have to give up their familiar power and comfort. And so Jesus gives them these instructions in verse 8. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet. Jesus sends the disciples out with incredible power, power that they probably didn't even daydream about having when they were children out on the fishing boats. Jesus sends them out, but makes them give up the familiar power and the familiar comfort before they go. Imagine if you were being given that same power. What would Jesus tell you to leave at home so that you would rely solely on him? Would it be something like, leave your phone behind? Set aside your wallet and your debit card. You can wear comfy shoes, but don't even take an extra set of clothes. Go wherever I send you and be completely dependent upon whoever you stay with. Because that dependency upon the people you stay with will remind you of your total dependence on me. The disciples are asked to give up and to leave behind all of their familiar sources of power and comfort. To get rid of all that they're familiar with. And instead, be given something greater. And to show the people something greater than what they anticipate. And so the disciples go out, performing signs, signs of the kingdom, showing a restoration of shalom. They are given this power, and as they go out and as they share their signs, they also share their message, and they call people to repent. It starts to sound a little bit like the ministry of John the Baptist, when John was calling people to repent, for the kingdom has drawn near. And now, in the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom is fully here and present. And the disciples are calling people to the same repentance. Turn away from the lesser lights and turn away to the great light who is Jesus Christ. Leave behind that which is familiar, that which is your comfort. And instead, know the true power of God. Now this continues for a while. And sometimes we end the passage right at that point where the disciples are being sent out. But I'm glad that our text today includes the setting into which they're going. Do you remember now that as Jesus sends out the twelve, the beheading of John the Baptist is fresh in their minds. That's part of their reality. When Jesus sent his disciples out and told them he was sending them like sheep among wolves, It's with the full knowledge that they are being sent out into a world where people are beheaded, 
if they ruffle the wrong feathers. Herod is terrified because by reputation, he's hearing about people doing signs and and proclaiming this message of repentance, and he's afraid because Herod has a very complicated relationship between power and fear. Herod has some power, and he craves it more than anything else, but he craves it so much that he also is terrified of losing it. And so he's tricked, even by his own power. His lust for power is his downfall because he can't look weak in front of his guests. He doesn't want John dead because he's afraid of John, but he can't look weak in front of his guests. So he's trapped by his own power. Herod has a complicated relationship with power and fear and a very interesting relationship with John because he protects him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Herod is anything but righteous and holy, but he knows or at least can sense true power when it's in front of him. And so it's puzzling, but he can't help but to be drawn to it. But he feels safe because John the Baptist is in prison and is bound and can't cause him any trouble. And then when John is killed, there's nothing scarier for Herod than the possibility that people that he made dead don't stay dead. Herod has earthly power. He has power. He has all the comforts of being a king. But if his power to make people dead no longer exists, he has lost his greatest source of power, which is his fear over the people. His first thought is, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead, and this is not good for me, and it means the power I have is failing. Once again, we have just a little foreshadowing in the Gospel of Mark. Just a hint, a phantom in Herod's mind that dead people aren't staying dead. Now, we know this to actually be Jesus and John as separate people. But what Herod is worried about is how the story will end in the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus will die and rise again. That the full restoration of Shalom will be on full display when Jesus rises again from the dead, overcoming the power of sin and death in the world and restoring Shalom to all who believe. Herod's power is failing, and it terrifies him. As we think about power, what's familiar and what's foreign to us, I encourage you to put yourself in the story. Maybe notice those places in our own lives where we're a little bit like the people of Nazareth, where we think we've got Jesus all figured out. Maybe it's good to identify a little bit, not too much, with Herod in knowing what is it that we are most afraid of losing. What is it that you are most scared to give up to lose? And then to be able to give that up. For the disciples, following their example, as we have also been called to be disciples, it's noting the things that we're most afraid, the things that we love the most for their comfort, and being able to put those on the second shelf and instead receive what God has given us. This is all just 
a flashback with Herod. But it sums up the story of what ha- what's happening with power. And maybe the things that should amaze us just a little bit more than they do. My friends, let's be ever amazed by the presence of Jesus and maybe ask and wonder and push into the great mysteries of God, never taking for granted, never becoming familiar in a casual way with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.